And Father, we do praise you that we're not informing you of these needs. We know that you know all things, and you know them far better, obviously, infinitely better than we do. And we just praise you that you just desire us to lay them before you. And as we have, we agree on them and do desire that you would intervene in places that need intervening, that you would, in fact, work in marriages, that you work in physical ailments, whatever the need may be. We know that you desire to use them in all of our experiences, and we lay them before you, seeing how you might work sovereignly. And this morning, we desire to see in your word how to better be equipped to reach a lost world and to share the gospel with them. And we desire clarity of thought and mind and to be able to put aside any sin or any distraction that would keep us from fully understanding what you have to communicate. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're still in the book of Romans, obviously. We'll be there, what, 15 or so more years. Last time uh, we, in fact, last three times we spent quite a bit of time looking at the concept of faith, and I should have mentioned it, but I uh, forget sometimes. Anyway, I gave you an example, and we've given you lots of examples of how to do a word study, but I didn't distinguish last time. In doing a word study, remember, what do you do? You look up all of the verses that contain that particular word, and your bottom line is you're attempting to see how Scripture uses particular words. So they may be different from the way we use, at least the English translation. So once you understand kind of, we call that range of meaning, and once you understand the possible ways a word can be used, in the New Testament at least, or the Bible, you're doing a complete one. And, and then you find out or you look at the particular passage in the particular context to see how the author is using it in that particular context. And if you remember when we did a word study on the word law, we saw that sometimes Paul uses the same Greek word, namas, in the same verse in two different ways. And we saw just from the book of Romans... Paul uses the word nine different ways, at least. At least those are the ones that I was able to identify. So once you do that, that's basically a complete word study, because that's what you're looking for. Bottom line, how is the word used in its particular context? Now, what I've done a lot of times, I did last time with the word faith. We did the basic word study, but then I went beyond that, and from that word study, that's useful for not only understanding a word in its context, but you can take it to the next level from that same work that you've done and do a theological study. And what we did last time and the time before was more of a theological study. In other words, not just the meaning of the word faith, which is pretty basic, but we went beyond that and did a theological study that took it the next step. In other words... Theologically, what is this concept of faith all about? So this morning, and the reason I introduce it that way, is we're going to look at another word, or focus on another word, peace. Pretty basic. I don't think any of you here will find anything new, probably. But after you do a basic word study, what I'm going to do is take it the next step, and we're going to look at it somewhat theologically. In fact, we'll step through those steps 
But before we get there, let's develop the context and obviously the historical context to Christians in Rome. Many of them died in the Colosseum right there. Now, the Colosseum wasn't built till after the death of Paul and Peter, but there was persecution at the end of the first century, and uh, they would perform uh, spectacles using Christians as the spectacle. So that's a little background there. We're still in the main portion of the book of Romans. Some carry it all the way to chapter 11, and I can see the logic there. But at least through the end of chapter 8, where God provides righteousness for a condemned humanity, condemnation, 1, 18 through 3, 20. And that provision, as we've been seeing over and over, and we'll be reminded again, Paul calls it theologically justification. Salvation, but he's looking at it from the legal perspective in terms of God and God's Supreme Court of Justice, ultimate Supreme Court. It's called justification, and we've looked at the ins and outs of it. Now, that goes through the end of 21. Now, I'm going to give you another, since we're getting into Chapter 5, an alternative view of seeing it structurally real quick. So we have the provision, in other words, in verses 21 through 26, one sentence Paul outlines, and I've been emphasizing, this is to believers. An unbeliever can't understand that sentence. Most believers can't. We went through it, took us six weeks, I think, just to get all of the concepts there. So the provision of justification, the rest of the chapter, he prioritized what that provision is. It's by faith and faith alone. We've been looking at chapter 4, the pattern. If you can't find it in the Old Testament, then it's not probably a legitimate doctrine. So it goes all the way back to Abraham and shows that justification was the means by which Abraham came into a relationship with God. He was justified as well. Or he received what justification provides is righteousness. And in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5, He's going kind of one step further after he's developed justification. Now, what do we gain from it? Or what's the profit from it? Or what are the benefits of it? However you are, way you want to kind of define it. First 11 verses there. Obviously, we won't look at all of them today. But let me give you a different way of arranging the material. Now, some scholars see the end of the section on justification ending in chapter 4. That's the next slide I have here. And they put chapter 5 in the next major section, which we will call sanctification. So we have condemnation, justification, and then after, I think, chapter 5, we have sanctification. So the two alternative ways, a new section with chapter 5, would put chapter 5 along with 6, 7, and 8, under the category or the section called sanctification. And there's some good reasons to see that. Uh, There are a lot of similarities between what you have in chapter 5 and what's developed beginning in chapter 6 through 8. Vocabulary similarities as well. And I I won't go into all the details, but if you're interested, I can suggest some commentaries that go in that direction. So it puts justification ending in chapter 4, so 3.21 through 4.25, and then it puts sanctification starting with chapter 5 through 8. Make sense? But it's probably, I think it's more of a transitional chapter 
from justification, and we'll see that from verse 1 particularly, but there's some other elements in there as well. So chapter 5 is more transitional, so I would put it with justification. And like I gave you the title there, probably giving us the benefits. And then in chapter 6, he will move into sanctification. So I go justification 321, the end of chapter 5, and then beginning in chapter 6 through 8, the concept of sanctification. In other words, how does justification work out in our everyday experience? That's what sanctification is. Whereas I see chapter 5, he's just kind of laying a foundation for how it works itself out. That foundation, part of what he's talking about there, the main thing, I think, is the benefits that we derive from it. And then once we understand that foundation of benefits, now he can take the next step and show us how it works out in everyday living. So two ways of taking it. One is not necessarily right, the other one wrong. Two possibilities, just a matter of how you arrange structurally the passage. Now, beginning in chapter 5, if you were living in the first century, and perhaps even today, and we've been stressing the concept of what? Justification, obviously, or maybe not so obviously, but what at least we've been stressing. By what? Well, by grace, through faith, by grace, in other words, nothing that we can do, Apart from law, apart from works, only through faith. So it's a grace concept. And if you were in the first century, a Jew, that's almost a foreign concept. Because they're so entrenched in the law, they're so entrenched in a system of works. That was contemporary Judaism in the time of Paul and time of Christ. In fact, that's what Jesus battled throughout. So also Paul. So... If you read Paul, you would say, well, you know, if justification is by faith alone, Paul, that that almost doesn't make sense. In fact, it's too good to be true. And if something's too good to be true, then what? It's probably not true. (laughs) In other words, there's nothing I can do if just simply trust what God has done, and I just believe So in the Jewish mind, and probably in the unbelieving mind today, you ask these questions. That sounds too good to be true. That's too far. That's too simple. There's got to be more to it. So you might ask the question, well, if that's true, will it last? I mean, how long is that going to last? One day? One nanosecond? Will it continue to the end? In other words, the rest of my life. In other words, is this something that you can maintain for the rest of your life, justification by faith and faith alone? Might there be circumstances that might intervene to undermine that or take it away? So that leads to the next one. Can you lose your salvation? Or can you lose this justification? Is there some way? What about Paul? What about passages like Hebrews chapter 6, where that passage almost indicates that you can lose it? You're losing something there. And remember, we went through Hebrews, concluded that you're not losing salvation. You do lose something, but reward. What about John 15, where Jesus uses the analogy of the vine and the branches? And the branches that are not abiding, what happens to them? In the fire. What does that mean? What's going on there? Doesn't that indicate that perhaps 
something relating to salvation or justification is lost? Well, so you have these questions, and I think Paul is going to emphatically answer these, and not only answer these, but even go beyond simply answering these simple questions. So, is there any assurance at all? And I think the focus of this passage is assurance. You would expect that if you could lose your salvation or if justification by faith could be undermined, you would expect that after the discussion of it, at the end of chapter 4, you would expect that this would be the chapter where you have warnings or you would have some way of indicating that unless you continue or unless something is done, then you might be in jeopardy of losing it. So he begins to give some answers, and just real quickly, in 5.1, instead of a warning, we have assurance that now we have a new standing before God. We stand before him in peace. And we saw, in fact, I'm going to give you another slide on that that kind of expands the alternative. Apart from justification by faith, we're basically at war with God. And he's at war with us. I'll show you a whole list of things that we already covered. And this is just the beginning. We have uh, New American Standard translates a word there as introduction. So this is just the beginning of more blessing. So this isn't kind of the end in itself. Now it's at the end in terms of our standing. In other words, it's settled. But there's even more to come. There's more grace, is what verse 2 tells us. And he gives us assurance of the end product. So he answers the question, what about the rest of my life? He even goes beyond that. And he assures us and gives us the first hint of glorification that he's going to talk about in chapter 8. In other words, even beyond this life, we have assurance of glorification. No insecurity, no sense of losing anything. Anywhere in this passage, Romans chapter 5, particularly verse 11. What about tribulations? Is that going to throw me off? What about when the trials of life enter in and I'm struggling? What's going to happen there? Well, it's not inconsistent. In fact, there's even, you could include that as one of the benefits. Tribulation is a benefit and it has products. And he goes down a whole list. In other words, tribulation produces this. Endurance, endurance produces this. Endurance keeps going where it ends in hope. In other words, it only strengthens my hope that the end is going to be a positive end. So tribulations are not inconsistent with justification by faith, verses 3 through 5, because it's grounded in God's love, a love that takes an enemy, we're enemies of Christ, and turns them, it doesn't say in the text, a friend, but we have a relationship, a new standing, where all of this is based on the love of God. So to think of any insecurity undermines the concept of God's love. So 6 through 10, it's grounded in his love. And in verse 10, he talks about a future salvation. Justification is that past salvation, but there's a future deliverance from the situation that we find ourselves in today. And then in verse 11, there is a permanent reconciliation, that relationship with God. There's no insecurity in verse 11. It's established. It's permanent. It's, it's not going to be lost. It's not going to be taken away. So I think this is a great passage 
taken overall in terms of giving great assurance to those that have trusted and trust alone or faith alone, totally by grace. And this chapter, and particularly 1 through 11, is full of grace. Does that make sense? So that's kind of an overview. In fact, another overview of the chapter, a more exegetical overview. We have the prophet from justification, 1 through 11. 1 and 2 are present benefits. In other words, immediate benefits the moment we trust in Jesus Christ and only trust. No works, no dependence on anything within us. There's immediate present benefits. There's also need to be prepared for ongoing tribulation, but in the midst of tribulation, we can exalt. We can praise God in it, because we're going to look at it from a different perspective. We're going to see that God is going to produce something. In fact, it's that tribulation that is the very means that God is going to use to sanctify us. So he gives us some hints of sanctification in this passage as well. That's why I see it somewhat as a transition to the next chapter, chapter 6. And, and notice in my outline here, I'm kind of camping on the time frames of when these are placed before. So 5, 6 through 8, we have a past divine accomplishment. So he focuses on what God has accomplished, taking enemies. And then now, much more, isn't he going to pour out more love towards those that he took who were hostile towards him, that were enemies? So God accomplished something by justification. And then we have the focus on the future salvation in 9 through 11. Now, we're probably not even get, get through 5, 1, and 2 today, but we'll pick up as usual where we leave off. Make sense? Any questions on that? Now, this is my exegetical outline. and the outline I passed out, I, you notice that it only goes through verse 2, so we're going to focus on present benefits of justification. And there's at least three that are outlined there, and we'll look at the first one, and that might be as far as we can get. I've got an outline within the outline. I've got the exegetical outline, so there's three benefits I lay out there. Peace with God, that's verse 1. Now, the outline that I sent in the email, I made a change on it because I... uh, I was using old notes when I put that together, and as I looked at that word more specifically, I had introduction there. Change that to access, those of you that printed it out. So grace access, that's verse beginning of verse 2, and then there's a third one, the exaltation in glory. Three benefits of justification by faith and faith alone. And as usual, we have a complete sentence, verses 1 and 2. That's why I group them together. So take a look at it, and let's take a moment here. Some of you have gotten very skilled at analyzing the structure. Uh, What are you looking for here, first off? Well, yeah, you're jumping ahead. Main clauses. How many main clauses do you find in the passage? Independent clauses. Okay, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Independent clause number one. Linda identified it. Is there another one in there? We exult in the hope of the glory of God. Very good. So Connie's got the second one. Two independent clauses. So you would expect the main subject and the main verb. You have, you'll see two of them each. 
And the main subject of the first independent clause is, which is interesting because Paul has shifted, and this is one of the reasons some of the commentators see a change in the structure. We have a first person plural, we, so now he's looking at it more collectively. Uh, okay, we have, have is the verb, yeah. And you can include peace as well. We have peace. And the second one, we, same subject, exalt, subject and verb. So everything is going to talk about at least peace and exaltation. Now, in my outline, I included the subordinate clause in between and kind of gave it a little bit higher status because it, I think it includes a third benefit. We won't get there today. But through whom also we have obtained our introduction. Now, that's New American Standard. The the word basically has access. But I think combining the two ideas, we have uh, introduction, access to God, which in the first century would have been a striking thing. We get that far, I'll explain what that is. In fact, if you just think about it, what was the access to God in the Old Testament? Just real quickly. Through the priests. Through the priests, exactly. In fact, Gentiles, they couldn't go far into the temple. They were on Temple Mount, but the temple itself, were they able to go in? No. The furthest they could go is where? Court of the Gentiles. What about the women? They could only go to the court of the women. What about the priests themselves? Could they go into the Holy of Holies? No. The priests only could go into the holy place, and only some of them, and only one, that's Connie's pointing out, once a year, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. And what Paul is saying, we have an introduction to direct access because we have a relationship with the mercy seat that is inside of the Holy of Holies. Very striking. A very different benefit from Old Testament saints. Okay? So, we have peace with God, verse 1. That's the first benefit that we want to look at. But let's develop the context. Therefore. Therefore is there for a reason. And the reason, it ties it back, and I think this is one of the reasons I keep it together, because I think it's related to justification. So he hasn't gone on, he's still dealing with the issue of justification, therefore having been justified, now that's a participial phrase there, having been justified by faith, so... He's looking past. In other words, he's summarizing everything, I think, from 321 to the end of chapter 4. So, if this is the case, if you have been justified, if you have trusted by, and it's by faith, it's faith alone, now there's going to come some things that follow. So that's kind of the underlying foundation of everything in chapter 5, having been justified by faith. And what was that condition before justification? And the reason I bring this up, because uh, we didn't have peace. We were at war. And it begins in verse 18. We're under wrath. God's anger. Wrath. We talked about that. And in that context, it's in present tense. So it's not ultimate wrath. It's right now wrath. Immediate wrath. 
We are under wrath apart from Jesus Christ. He iterates that in chapter 2, verse 5. We're without excuse. That's a legal term. In the Supreme Court, we have no case. There's nothing that we can give to the judge that's going to release us. And after the discussion, we're found guilty, and there's nothing that we can do. So we're accountable without excuse. 120, 319, that's reiterated. We saw that in 319. We're abandoned by God. In other words, God abandons. He gives them up. Verse 24, verse 26, he gave them up. Verse 28, again, he gave them up, abandoned by God. That's pretty drastic. We're also condemned, chapter 2, and that's, this is a recurring theme. I don't have all the verses there, but in chapter 2, verse 1, 3, 8, 5, 8, beyond, in chapter 8, kind of loose back. 5, 16, again, looting back, con- condemnation. It's kind of the summary of the whole section. We're facing judgment for 16 verses. He lays out the principles of God's judgment in order to reveal that we fall into that category of being under judgment. This is war. This is not peace. We're under sin, 3-7, We're spiritually helpless, or we were. Now, this is in chapter 5, but he's alluding back. 8, we're enemies of God. That's also in chapter 5. Enemies, warfare. 9, hostile towards God, even in chapter 8, alluding back again. So you put it all together. This is before justification. There's no peace. But now, having been justified, we are at peace with God. So justification, the stress that we've seen is apart from law, 3.20 and 21, very specific. It's by faith, and this isn't all of the verses. There's several others as well. 3.22, 3.25 through 28, 3.30, 4.3, 5.9, 5.1 and 2. And we're reminded of it later on as well. So justification is by faith and faith alone. He made that clear. It's as a gift. That's grace. In fact, the word grace is also used. The word gift is used in verse 24. Grace, also in verse 24. In fact, the whole passage is grace. Apart from works. So it's not only apart from the law, but any works, even non-law works. 327 and 28, 4-2, 4-6. Apart from circumcision, particularly amongst Jewish audience, chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. So it's by faith and faith alone. By grace through faith. That's justification. So therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Drastic change. Totally different situation. Peace with God. Now, let's look at this a little bit more closely. Let me give you some background. Now, most of you probably understand the concept of peace in the New Testament. But let's go back and see where it comes from, because the New Testament picks up from the Old Testament. So to properly do a word study on the word peace, we have to do a word study on the well-known word in Hebrew. All of you know Hebrew, right? Shalom. Very good, Hebrew students. So let's take a look at peace. The Old Testament usage, there's shalom. That's the noun form. The verb form is shalem in Hebrew. You just change the pointing from 
a noun or a verb. But basically, the verb and the noun have kind of the same idea. So if you do a word study on each, you're going to come to several conclusions. In other words, these are the categories of the way the word shalom is used in the Old Testament. And let's look up some of these. Genesis, who wants to do It's used in the context of battle and war. So it's used in a literal battle situation. In other words, real killing, if you will. He's got 26. Mm-hmm. Connie's got that one. Joshua 9, 15. Who's Jeremy? In fact, let's look up some other ones. Uh, who wants to do Genesis 37? You, Craig, you started to raise your hand. Bob, why don't you do Isaiah 32? Okay, Genesis 26, 29. The context of this, if you remember... Abimelech and Isaac were doing battle. In fact, there were some struggles within the tribes and the peoples. And what is uh, 26? Go ahead and read what uh, uh, verse 29 says. Actually, 28. It starts in 28. Okay. He said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So he said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant. Verse 29. That you will do us no harm, since we have not touched you. And since we have done nothing to you but good, and have sent you away in peace. Have sent you away in shalom. We are now the blessed of the Lord. Okay. There's shalom, the noun. And Jeremy, you got Joshua 9.15. Now this one is in the context of war. Joshua has conquered Jericho and Ai. And the Gibeonites now bring, they see what's going on, so... You know, they don't want to be conquered as well. So they bring this scheme and they enter into a covenant to protect themselves. And what does Joshua 9.15 say? Joshua made peace with there. them. Okay. And made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. Okay. So they enter into a covenant so that they're not going to continue with the conquest. And the word shalom is in that context. But the word is not just in the context of war. It's also used in the context in terms of people having a well-being or wholeness. And that's kind of behind the, the word as well. And obviously in war, you're cut in half sometimes. So wholeness in a more... Spiritual, you might even say, but even in a more psychological sense, you could say. And Genesis 37, 13 through 14 gives us that sense. In fact, the New American Standard, I don't know which one, Craig, is that one that you're reading? Which version are you using? New King James. Okay, I don't know how that translates it, but uh, after you read it, I'll give you the New American Standard. In fact, New American Standard translates shalom, well-being. Go ahead and read it. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am. And he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks, and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Okay, so Joseph, remember here we have the twelve tribes. Eleven of them are out tending the sheep. Jacob, or I think it says Israel there, sends Joseph to go check on them. And what does he want to know? If they have shalom, 
if they have well-being, in other words, if they're okay, well-being, right, wholeness, in other words, contentedness, that's shalom. In fact, you know, we use it as a greeting, and it's in a greeting, when you say shalom to a Jew, you're just basically saying, I wish you that everything's fine with you. I wish that you have wholeness, wellness. Make sense? So it's used in that sense, and there's a lot of verses in there. But there's some context, and I think this may be behind what we have in the book of Romans, what Paul is talking about, because he's just talked about justification that provides righteousness between for a holy God, and it is used in the sense, and as a result of righteousness, for example, Isaiah 32, 17. Is that you, Dwayne? Or Bob, you got that one? And the work of righteousness will be peace, and the service of righteousness, quietness, and confidence. So the work of righteousness... In other words, the product of a right standing before God. This is the idea in Romans 5.1. The Isaiah idea here, that produces shalom. A right standing before God, a person is no longer at war with God, but has shalom. Make sense? Similarly, 54.10, get that one? Will the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken. Nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And there's a few others in the Old Testament that speak of this covenant of righteousness, or covenant of peace, rather. That covenant, in some context, probably looks ahead to the justification by faith of the new covenant. And it's a covenant of shalom, covenant of standing in the context of righteousness. And there's several other verses. There's a fourth usage. There's the peace offering. That's the same idea. When you're out of fellowship, you offer a peace offering to regain wholeness, to regain shalom before a holy God in the Old Testament. The New Testament, the word erene, Greek word, got it right there? Mm-hmm. Ah, good. Let's take a look at it. Now, I think the New Testament picks up from the Old Testament, and the word as used by the New Testament writers, I think focuses more on that well-being and wholeness idea. But it also has the idea in terms of a relationship with God. So I see... If you do a word study, and now you take the next step and do more of a theological study, I'm going to give you some theological conclusions I've come to. That makes sense? Now, you can come to several, well, not several, but a few categories of how the word is used, and then from that, we can come up with two basic ways, and I see a positional condition or standing of peace, where you have peace with God. And that, in addition, there is a possibility of having the peace of God. All right? So, positional, peace with God. There's many passages in the New Testament that uses a reine, the Greek word. Colossians 1, 20 and 22, who's got that one? Start over again. Connie, do you want to start that one? Ephesians two fourteen. Jeremy, I guess. Yep. You're the default. Romans 3, Dwayne twitched a little bit, so he gets Romans 3. 
Now, if you twitch, that's a volunteer. <laughs> and while we're looking some some up, uh, Gendron's yawning over there, so he gets fourteen twenty-seven. Oh, you don't have a Bible? Oh no. <laughs> Who's got it? Okay, everybody's real still. Which one? John fourteen twenty-seven. Second Thessalonians three. There we go. Strong volunteer there. Who's got the Colossians one? You want to do that one as well, Connie? Why don't you pick that one up since you're in Colossians? Philippians 4. Oh, okay. Harold's got it. Colossians 1, 20 through 22. In every one of these passages, we have the word erene, and I think in all of the translations, it's translated peace. But notice the kind of peace. It's peace with God. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross, of his cross, and you who were alienated and enemies, who were once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and approachable Okay, that's what Paul has been talking about in Romans. He hasn't used the word reconciliation, but he's talked about it's affected by him. The him is Christ. His blood, we saw that in Romans. Peace is affected, and the contrast, we were, what's the word, alienated. Okay, that's in the context. So that is peace between man and God. Same thing that he's talking about in 5.1. Ephesians 2.14 for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He is our peace, Jesus Christ. He's the mercy seat. It's where the justice of God meets mankind, where God's love is evident as a result of Christ dying, shedding blood. He is our peace. And in that context, it extends socially. We have peace with God, and God affects a peace that touches Jew and Gentile. The, the wall of separation is broken down. Romans 3, this is even... What I intended by that is this is kind of the contrast. In other words, this is the war, this is the battle, and we saw that passage. Totally alienated, no righteousness, totally condemned, and then now in chapter 5 we have peace. So it's all reversed. But there is also this concept of not only peace with God, but peace that we can draw on from God, but you have to have peace with God first, theologically. There's no peace of God until you have peace with God. So the peace with God is positional, it's more objective, it's more judicial, you might even say, if you want to use Paul's legal sense. So that is different from experiential, which is more subjective, and in some cases it is internal as well, the peace of God. And Jesus promises this in the upper room and in the upper room discourse, 1427, Craig. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. 
Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Okay, so he's giving the 12, or actually the 11, in John 14, his peace. So it comes from him. God is the one that grants peace. In that context, Jesus is granting peace. Kind of. So if he's giving this again, he's talked about promises as being specific and then general principle we can take from that. Yes. So the specific giving of his peace to the 11, can we appropriate that verse as well? Based, I think, on some of the passages like Colossians. In other words, if you have experienced the same thing that the Colossians have experienced, yes. Based on what Romans 5.1, if you've experienced justification by faith, yes. So here you have a close correlation between the promise and the application. Very good. Second Thessalonians 3.16, I think this is inward. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Okay, so that's in a context of a church circumstance. And notice the God of peace. In other words, he's the origin, the source. He doesn't come from anywhere else. And it's a prayer, if you will. May God grant you that peace that is from him. The God who established peace, and you now you have peace with him. He's writing to believers in Second Thessalonians. So they have peace with God. Now, experientially, Paul prays that they will experience that peace in whatever... And remember, the church was in uh, persecution. So in the midst of that, they can have peace. Colossians 3.15. Connie, you got that one again? And the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Okay, let the peace rule in your hearts. So that's inward. That's experiential. Now, I'm bringing this out, even though in 5.1, it only deals, I think, with the positional aspect but in order to apply this, I think we can uh, apply it based on these other passages as well. And, and in five one, right, that you said that ties it back to what was in four, more of the yes. justification. Yeah, uh, the battle, the war. We're no longer at war with God. We're at peace with Him now. In fact, we have shalom in the peace with God aspect. Philippians four. Philippians 4, starting at verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. 7, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Put it into practice in the context of struggle or battle or or conflict. You can have, in other words, the circumstances don't dictate the peace that we can have that is internal. Okay? Key passage. In fact, Philippians 4-7 is a very encouraging passage for the believer. So the circumstances don't matter we can experience, even in the most horrific circumstances, God's peace. And that's what he's praying. And Paul is the example of it. So that's peace in the New Testament, the New Testament usage. And if we had time, we could look at some examples. Let me just highlight some of them, and then we'll close here. 
Paul gives us an example. Remember when Paul was in the Philippian jail? And jails back then, you didn't have cable TV. And you didn't have a nice soft bed. You didn't have three meals a day. In fact, you had to depend on outside sources, family or the church, to provide your nourishment, your food. And you'd have rats crawling over you at night. And you were probably in chains and chained to the wall. And in that circumstance, what does Paul do? Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16? They're rejoicing because they have peace. And there's other examples, Second Corinthians, in, in the midst of shipwreck, in the midst of drowning, in the midst of sleepless nights, and all the lists that he has in Second Corinthians, in that context, Paul has peace. Stephen, did he have peace when he was stoned? Mm-hmm. To the extent that God revealed himself in vision, yeah, Stephen, and these are just some kind of blatant, or maybe not blatant, glaring, I guess, examples. Jesus himself, was he at peace on the cross? And all the events leading up to it, he's of a sound mind, he's making sound decisions, he's directing the disciples, he's encouraging them, and in the midst, he is on the way to dying, and he knows what's happening. He knows the cup that he must drink. So there's lots of examples, and we could make a longer list. The source, we've already seen from... A couple of passages we read, the source, what? God himself. And I just throw this in because you're, some of you are dozing off. Is this where we get peace? <laughs> By coexisting? This is the world's idea of peace. And you've probably seen some of these signs or these portions of them where just love, just get along. Don't let religion get in the way. That's why we have all these religious symbols there, Islam, etc. The peace symbol, cross at the end there. What about this one? What do you think of this statement? Inner peace begins the moment you choose not to allow another person or event to control your emotions. It's really self-generated. Yeah, self-generated peace. Some people can pull it off to some extent, maybe. But that's not biblical peace. It's not what we have in these passages we're looking at. But uh, we won't look these up, but you can jot them down in 1 Corinthians 14.33. It focuses on the God of peace or God as the source of peace. Jesus in John 14, 27, we read that one where my peace I give you, Jesus is speaking. In Galatians 5.22, you remember that passage? The fruit of the Spirit, so peace comes from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, what? Shalom, if you want to put Hebrew in there, or Eirene, peace. Okay? And it's through this peace, it's through our Lord Christ Jesus, kind of summarizes what we said Justification is as a result of what God has done in Christ, not what we have done or what we can do or try to do. So we got through verse 1. Didn't get through a whole sentence, but the main part. Believers have a peace the world cannot know. 
but it's based on that initial peace with God, and then now we can have inner experiential peace. Who wants to close horse? You twitched, close horse. Yep. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this lesson that you provided for me. We give you the glory, Father. We love your peace. You suppress all of this thing. We rejoice in your peace, Lord, knowing that all things are good. You will be Thank you, Father. Guide us in the goodness to have peace as we go out in the world. Amen. We'll pick up from there next week.